I have a very good friend. His name is Justin, and I've known him since third grade, 1989. Uh, he was here for Father's Day of last year, uh, first time he was able to visit us here in New England, first time, obviously, he was able to come to church and, and hear me preach, and it was, um, it was a very meaningful time in my life because Justin was my first friend who began to follow Jesus in high school. I've shared some of my story with you. I grew up in church. I knew about God. I didn't know God until college. But the Lord saw fit to surround me with some folks who were beginning to process the gospel and, in fact, trust in Jesus and follow him. And Justin was the first one. I remember one Thursday morning in 11th grade trigonometry class. I look over... The class hasn't started yet, and Justin's furiously trying to finish his homework. Sine, cosine, tangent, all, you know, he's, he's going so fast. And I'm like, man, what's wrong with you? He's like, I, I, I didn't get my homework done. I said, what were you doing last night? I, said, I was in church. He went to church on Wednesday nights, went to a Bible study. I was like, man, you need to do your homework in a condescending way. I'm like, what are you doing in church on a Wednesday night? And he looked at me with love, but with some firm words and said, Dane, you know, it would probably be good to, for you to give a little more attention to your soul and a little less attention to your school and your sports. Ouch. I remember being angry with him. Why? What was he doing? My friend Justin put his finger on my idols. And anytime our, ang our idols are threatened, anger is the result. I was angry with him. Yet he loved me enough to speak the truth to me. He pressed on the things that I loved, that I worshipped, that I was building my life upon. He had pressed on my idols. And anger results when our idols are threatened. It is this challenging truth that we see in the text of scripture this morning. Anger results when our idols are threatened. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 19 on page 928, page 928 in those black hardcover Bibles. If you're here this morning and you need a copy of the scripture, uh, there are some hardcover Bibles in the lobby. If you go uh, in there, the third bookcase on your right as you're coming in, you're welcome to have one of those. That's a, a gift from us to you. So feel free to take one of those. And if by chance you're newer to reading the scripture, uh, the larger numbers, those are chapter numbers. The smaller numbers, those are verse numbers. So I'm going to begin in chapter 19 in Acts uh, verse 21, and I'll read through verse 41. Luke is the author, and he writes, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about Two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know what the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The central message of this sermon is expect outrage as the gospel undermines idolatry. Expect outrage as the gospel undermines idolatry in our hearts and in the hearts of those we minister to. This sermon is expectation management. It's warfare. When you press on people's idols and when people press on your idols, some of the strongest response in our lives we will see. Expect outrage as the gospel undermines idolatry. So two, two movements we'll see here in this passage. Outrage results when idols are threatened. This is the bulk of the passage. That's 23 through 34. And then we see God provides grace in the face of outrage. That's verses 35 through 41. God provides grace in the face of outrage. So that'll serve as our kind of twofold framework as we work through this passage together. Well, the initial verses of this passage, verses 21 and 22, highlight Luke's travel plans. And it's important for us to get an idea of where he's headed. So verse 21, Luke tells us, 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, in other words, guided by the Spirit in his every travel decision, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that is Greece or where Corinth is, and go to Jerusalem, saying, I have been there, and I must also, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Macedonia, where he had served quite a bit, those are the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and also Berea, and then Achaia, that's where Corinth was, there's a thriving Christian community there, and then to Jerusalem, and ultimately, Paul desires to go to Rome. Not only are these his travel plans, but in fact, if you look at the rest of the book of Acts, this is the outline. This is where Paul is going and where he will spend most of his time working, ministering. Macedonia and Thessalonica, Berea and Philippi, we'll see this in Acts 20, verses 1 and 2. He'll go on to Corinth of Achaia, Acts 20, verse 3. And then Acts chapters 21 through 26 details Paul in Rome facing opposition. And then Acts closes chapters 27 and 28, Paul, his voyage to Rome after he appeals to Caesar. And there he is on house arrest at the end of chapter 28. So if you just sort of follow what we see here in verse 21, Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, and Rome, those are the major points of travel for Paul for the rest of the book of Acts. These geographic kind of marks that are going to guide us through the rest of the book of Acts. Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, Rome. That's where he's headed. That's where he's going to spend the bulk of his time. After outlining outlining his travel plans, Paul stays in Ephesus and pushes the gospel forward. Paul spends some three years in Ephesus, large amount of time ministering there. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. We talked last week, the power of staying, keeping your post, pushing the gospel forward in the midst of opposition. And we see the opposition increases here in Ephesus as Paul does this, as he pushes the gospel forward. This brings us to the first movement in the sermon, outrage results when idols are threatened. See this in verses 23 and following. Luke says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Do you remember what the way is? The way is the path of following Christ. And in the first century, as Christianity is moving forward, people use code language to speak of Christianity. It's the way. These are followers of the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you see the way in the book of Acts, that's speaking of the way of Christianity, the way of Christ. And so this disturbance arises as a result of the way, as a result of the ways of Christ, the truth of the gospel. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Why is Demetrius upset? The core of the issue 
is financial fear. The fear of his prosperity being lost. Great and profitable business was idol-making in Ephesus. We talked last week as we unpacked the first part of Acts chapter 19. There was a fascination with the occult in Ephesus. They were given over to idols, much like Athens that we walked through Acts chapter 17 on Easter Sunday. A fascination with shrines and figurines and idols, images of silver, the people would bow down and worship. With great fascination and attention comes the opportunity for great profit for some. And Demetrius was one of those who profited from this idolatry. Why? Because he was a silversmith. He made the very shrines that people would take and worship. These are shrines, replicas of the Temple of Artemis, which was a hub of idolatry, a hub of worship in Ephesus. Artemis, the Greek moon god, considered the nursing mother of all of creation. Statues of her with multiple breasts, also a patron goddess of sensuality. So mixed up into the idolatry, obviously, is sexual immorality. It's a hub, an epicenter of idol worship there in Ephesus. And so what Demetrius would do is he would make silver shrines, smaller figurines of the temple of Artemis that people could then take home to their own home altar. It's like worship in your home. Have it here. You don't even have to come to the temple. You will, I'll make you a little shrine, a miniature of the temple of Artemis, and you can have it there right in your home. Convenience. We see in this text later on, verse 35, there was the sacred stone that fell from the sky. So Artemis being a moon god, periodically you would have lunar material, meteorites come and fall. And they, there was one that fell in Ephesus. A meteorite that they, they ended up building a, a shrine and a temple upon. Uh, the direct communication from Artemis. And so that's why Ephesus became kind of a hub of Worship for Artemis. It was this meteorite, this sacred stone that fell from the sky. And people traveled from all over the Greco-Roman world to worship Artemis there in Ephesus. Notice what Demetrius says in verse 26. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This message that Paul is preaching is ringing out. Because people would flock to Ephesus, and Paul's been there almost three years. People would flock there, and Paul's telling them the same anti-idolatry message, the same message that he preached in Acts chapter 17. These things that are made by human hands are not worthy of your worship, is what Paul would say. And that message is beginning to infiltrate the culture and ultimately erode Demetrius' business. Less people are buying shrines in his shop, and his bottom line is suffering. Notice the ridiculous nature 
of idolatry here. Notice what Demetrius says. Paul is saying that these gods that we make with our own hands are not gods. Just follow the logic of that. These gods that we make, that we craft as human beings with our own hands are not gods. Of course they're not gods. They're from you. And this is what Isaiah does in the Old Testament. The ridiculousness of idolatry. He's like, you Israelites, you take a piece of wood and you cut it in half. And the one half, you bake your bread over the fire. And the other half, you bow down and you worship. Ridiculousness. The one half, you use your just daily fires to, to cook. And then the other half, you're giving yourself over. The foolish, ridiculous nature of worshiping lesser things. Now, we can kind of see this a little more clearly because we're outside their culture and we're looking in. But if someone gets outside our culture and looks into ours, they'll see the ridiculousness of our own idolatry. Why would you give yourself to your job, to your bank account, to that nest egg? That can't save you. That can't satisfy you. It can't possibly do that. And sometimes it takes being out of a culture and looking in to see the ridiculous, foolish nature of what we worship. the nature of worshiping lesser things that do not save, that do not satisfy emptiness. Vanity, the Bible says. A chasing after the wind. You try to capture wind in your hands, you, you, you can't do it. And so it is trying to capture meaning from your idols. It's going to slip through every time. Vanity. Emptiness. It's hollow. Demetrius goes on to speak of his perceived danger in Paul's message. Verse 27, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed, dethroned from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Notice how Demetrius speaks. He is the definition of a demagogue. The definition of a demagogue, a political leader who seeks support by appealing to popular desires rather than rational arguments. He plays with the passions of the people here. Plays with the passions of the tradesmen and of the civic and social pride of worshiping Artemis. And all of it is a smokescreen for a deeper idol in his heart, which is greed and financial security. But he speaks of it in nobler terms of civic pride and the trades. But really, he's worried about his bottom dollar. The smokescreen of our idolatry. Often we'll hide them, cover them with nobler terms, nobler causes. But at the end of the day, we're worried about something, oftentimes our bottom dollar. Oftentimes, politics are this way. We have differing political views and opinions. I wonder how much, though, our political stances are actually rooted in a fear of financial loss at the end of the day. Tax plans, 
government assistance, things like this, I wonder how much of our political party affiliation is actually rooted in our wallets sometimes. Demetrius is all about some of these nobler causes, but in his heart of hearts, he's worried about his bottom line. Beware the idolatry of greed and the fear of not having enough, which is just the same kind of idol. When the Ephesians heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Again, this is what happens when you press on people's idols. Rage. The whole city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, those are high-ranking officials in Asia, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. I have a picture of this theater from friends here who were there about a month ago. So this is a picture of Dave Raffensperger. He was there with Dylan Colley, Gail Pouliot, and a friend from Hope Fellowship. This is the theater that this whole thing happened in Ephesus. Massive theater accommodated thousands of people, center of culture, of civic life. They would do town business, assemble there in the theater. And so Demetrius is assembling all these people to do business with Paul and his companions right there in this theater. And it's a hostile, angry crowd, and Paul's friends are urging him, don't go, don't go in there, Paul. It's dangerous, you won't come out. Now some cried out one thing, some another thing. From the assembly was, they were all in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. This is textbook mob mentality. People are just fired up and don't know why. They're just there because they see a crowd, and a crowd will gather a crowd, and a crowd will gather more people. So they just, they just go down there, confusion abounds, mindlessness all acting with one accord, but they don't know why they're there. The anatomy of a mob. Paul's companions are dragged off. Paul wishes to go in, but his friends hold him back. And then verse 33, some of the crowd prompts Alexander, who was a Jew, to be put forward. And Alexander is motioning his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What's going on here with Alexander? Some of the Jews nudge Alexander, a fellow Jew, to go up and speak. Why? Probably because they want to distance themselves from the Christians, because the Jews are caught up in this whole tumult as well. And so some of the Jews say, Hey, you speak, Alexander, and separate ourselves from the Christians. But the Greeks aren't hearing any of this because in their mind, a Jew and a Christian, they don't worship idols, so they're all in the same boat. They won't even hear Alexander. Outrage results when idols are threatened. So can I ask you, the take-home application, a diagnostic question for you this week. 
when do you get angry in your life? When do you see your strongest response in life? What are the circumstances surrounding that? Our strongest, most passionate responses often come when what matters most to us is threatened. Self-diagnostic question, when do you get fired up in life? It's a good indication of something that you've set your affections on. How do you respond when your idols are threatened? And have you ever been on the receiving end of someone's rage when you press on their idols? Expect it when you do ministry together in a local church. If you're a member of this church, this is what we commit to. We commit to walking together in love and exercising a loving care and accountability over each other's lives as we seek to follow Christ. We say it every time we gather at a members meeting. We will walk together in love, and we will exercise a loving care and accountability over each other's lives. Accountability involves pressing on each other's idols. I need you to press on me, and you need me to press on you, and, and the whole church needs one another to press on each other. Expect some strong responses. Don't be afraid of asking somebody a question or saying the hard thing like my friend Justin said to me. Dane, you would do well to focus a little less on sports and school and a little more on your soul. Oh, I can recite that to you today because of how bad it stung, but it stuck. Outrage results when idols are threatened. The heart of idolatry is our passions that wage within. James says in chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. What causes upheaval in our lives? Conflict, quarrels. Our passions are at war inside of us. Your strongest response when somebody presses is because a passion in you is being threatened, pressed upon. That's the heart of it. And we need to analyze our hearts, what makes me outraged when threatened. It's a good indicator. That's something that I've set my affections on. Outrage results when idols are threatened. Second movement in the sermon. God provides grace in the face of outrage. God provides grace in the face of outrage. Luke writes in verses 35 and following, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, out of nowhere, a local administrative officer in Ephesus comes in and serves as the voice of reason. The town clerk, who was the chief administrative officer in Ephesus, and a, a liaison of sorts between the membership of the assembly, the, the city assembly there in Ephesus, and the Roman officials. A key person, a key voice, and in fact, God's appointed person of peace Though not a Christian, God sovereignly appoints a person of peace to preserve his people there. That's what we see here. The voice of reason. It's God's grace. He's appointed a person of peace to preserve his people there. This clerk gets up and says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone, that meteorite that fell from the sky? 
Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, those are judges. Let them bring charges against one another. The town clerk cuts to the heart of the situation. Look, if Demetrius has beef with these guys about his bottom line, go to the courts. They're there. They're open. But what we're doing here is just a commotion. It's rioting, and we are in danger of being held accountable by the Romans for rioting for no purposes. But if it is an issue with Demetrius and his business, the courts are open. Let them go. He's the voice of reason here, a non-Christian voice of reason that God raises up provides for his people. If you seek anything further, verse 39, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So notice, tumult goes to peace upon the voice of the clerk. A tactful and successful speech. Now, why is Luke so careful in detailing this for us? Why is this preserved in the book of Acts? Anytime you're reading this scripture, a key question is, why did God see fit to include this in his book? This is instructive for other Christians facing opposition elsewhere in the Roman world because it shows that the Christian gospel was not contrary to the Roman rule of law. This town clerk says, look, these men aren't doing anything contrary to to, to law. This speech would have served the cause of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. That's why Luke includes it. God used this town clerk and his tactful speech to advance his gospel, to continue to provide a, a pathway for the gospel to move forward throughout the Roman world. This is God's provision It's evidence of his grace to preserve his message and his messengers. God is working. I've been reading with my kids through Little Pilgrim's Progress, and we can't put it down. Literally, we can't put it down. It's John Bunyan's work, Distilled for Kids. Helen Taylor wrote it years ago. It's newly illustrated, 2021 publishing. It's very good. We would love to get you a copy of it. Over and over again in Little Pilgrim's Progress, we see the king of the celestial city constantly sending sources of help for his pilgrims along the way. In the midst of danger, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of difficulty, the king, the faithful king of the celestial city provides someone to help pilgrims trekking their way to the king. This is what we see. The faithful king provides a person of peace so that the gospel can go forward. That's what we see here. God is faithful. How has he been good to you in the face of difficulty in your life? In the face of opposition or affliction, what are evidences of his grace to sustain you through that? This is a beautiful picture here in Acts 19. God provides the town clerk to help his people, and his message goes forward. God provides... His greatest grace in that he allowed his son to step into the hostility for us. Notice 
what Luke tells us in Acts 19, verse 30. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, that is the theater, hostile crowd within the theater, the disciples would not let him go. They knew what would happen to him if he entered the theater. God's greatest provision of grace, however, is that he did allow his son to go into the theater. Didn't hold him back. Jesus went into the theater, experienced the full outpouring of the people's rage, the political leaders, the religious leaders, all of their opposition, for Jesus was pressing on their idols, wasn't he? Their idols of control, their idols of power, their idols of prominence. That's at the end of the day, it was jealousy that led the Jewish religious leaders to hand Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate saw right through it, for he saw that they were jealous, the gospel writers tell us. But it was God's wise, loving, sovereign plan to let his son go into the theater among all the rage and experience the full hostility that we might be saved and delivered from our idols. That's the, the nature of the gospel. Jesus was crushed for us so that we could then be released of the things that we attach our hearts to, the idols that we run to and give ourselves to. Jesus stepped into the hostility, bore it all to save us. This is God's greatest provision, his greatest grace and rest assured that Jesus' death sets us free from everything that we give ourselves to. He offers us relationship with him that can never be stripped away. It's the most beautiful, precious gift that you could ever receive, and it makes everything else that you give yourselves to pale in comparison. Life with Jesus, relationship with Jesus. That's what he offers us. Something so much better, a gift of grace that's unmatched. And so I want to encourage you, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, we're so grateful that you are. Would you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of everlasting life? By faith, you enter a life with him that cannot end, that cannot be stripped away, that is never hollow, that is not empty. He's with you always. It's the most beautiful, precious reality in life. And if you are a Christian, I just want to reinvigorate you to be captivated by Jesus all over again. Because you and I, as we walk this life as pilgrims in this pathway to God and to our heavenly city, we are constantly allured to worship other things. Things will constantly compete with Christ for your affections. What is it that's competing this morning? What are you tempted to give yourself to? Jesus is better. Be captivated by his beauty. Everything else pales in comparison. Give yourself to him. He will never disappoint. He will always satisfy. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you just for the honest, raw nature of your word that does press on our idols. Lord, help us to just diagnose our hearts just even this week, the things, the ways that we respond to our children to our coworkers or our bosses, to our spouses, to our neighbors, and ask, why am I responding with such vehemence when it's often that our idols are threatened? Help us, Lord, to discern our hearts, to seek you for grace and forgiveness and restoration. Empower us, Lord, to speak truth and love to one another as we do life together in this local church.
In Jesus' name, amen.